Good morning and welcome to the second of two GVALS lectures organized around Geneva College's recognition of Constitution Day. Uh, a couple housekeeping reminders as we get started today. First of all, if there's time immediately following Dr. Fia's talk, uh, we'll take some questions. If you're sitting up in the balcony and you have a question, just come down to the main floor. Uh, I haven't perfected flying yet, uh, or, and I don't want to run up and down the steps. So if you would just come down and stand in the back, then I'll know you want to ask a question. Um, otherwise, Dr. Fia will be available right after this lecture, uh, near the tent, uh, right outside this building. If you have questions, if you want to be in conversation about uh, what he says, about current events, and that sort of thing, uh, I know that he'd be happy to engage you in those conversations. We also need to allow time for people to move around the halls. Um, and so we're going to be trying to end right on time so that the people coming in up the stairs uh, can get where they need to go and you need to get uh, you can go where you need to go as well. So please remember to observe proper physical distancing as you leave. Four of Dr. Fia's books are available on the table outside the chapel. Uh, if you're interested, stop by on your way out, or uh, if you have to run off to class, uh, you can stop by the Crossroads office today or anytime on Monday. We'll have the books available through the end of the day on Monday, so we'd encourage you to come by then if you can't uh, look at them today. Now to the Constitution. On September 17, 1787, delegates to the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia to sign the document that they had created. Benjamin Franklin is the only founding father to have signed all four of the key documents establishing the United States, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the Treaty of Alliance with France in 1778, the Treaty of Paris, establishing peace with Great Britain in 1783, and in 1787, in his final significant act of public service, Franklin was a delegate to the convention that produced the Constitution. In September, the Constitution was completed, but many delegates were unhappy with it. And Franklin wrote an impassioned speech in which he urged all of the delegates to sign the document. At the beginning of his speech, he said this, I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure that I will never approve them. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions even on important subjects, which I once thought right, but found to be otherwise." Now, as I look around the room today, there are some of us who have, quote unquote, lived long, and uh, we can appreciate the wisdom of Franklin's statement. It is possible to change our minds after, for example, encountering evidence that we hadn't been aware of previously, or perhaps listening to persuasive arguments that challenge our beliefs, or having experiences that help us see life in new ways. For students, I hope that your educational journey will present you with many opportunities to think deeply about your perspectives, to learn new information that either confirms or challenges your beliefs. Presenting you with new ideas to consider is one of the goals of the annual GVAL series, and toward that end, I'm going to ask Dr. Miller to come to the podium to introduce our speaker today. Please welcome Dr. Miller.
Good morning, everyone. Delight to see you on this sunny last Friday of summer. It's my pleasure to introduce John Fia to you today. He's the Distinguished Professor of American History at Messiah University, where he's taught since 2001. Uh, the term, the adjective distinguished is very apt here over the past 20 years. Dr. Fia has established himself as a significant commentator and interpreter of American life, and particularly the relationship between American life and Christianity. In fact, I got to know Dr. Fia when we were at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School back in the early 1990s, and he was working on a master's thesis on a guy named Carl, and I was working on another Carl. I was working on a guy named Carl Henry, and Dr. Fia was working on a guy named Carl McIntyre. Anybody ever hear of Carl McIntyre here? Carl McIntyre was one of the founders of the Bible Presbyterian Church. He emerged out of the fundamentalist controversy, uh, was heavily involved in the Cold War in an attempt to help return America to what he thought of as its, Chris, as its Christian origins. And Dr. Fia was deep into this topic with the kind of scholarly and I would say civic enthusiasm that has come to mark his career in the decades since then. His 2008 book, uh, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, was uh, and is a marvelous bi biographical account of a young Presbyterian minister who, before he really even got his own pulpit, went into the revolution, uh, the American Revolution, um, as a chaplain and lost his life uh, as a chaplain fighting in behalf of, the, of uh, the nascent republic. And so this interplay between the republic of the United States and the Christian dimensions of it has been crucial uh, in his work. In 2000, 2011, his book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, appeared, and uh, it was widely read both in secular and Christian places, and Dr. Fia has been around the country uh, literally almost everywhere talking about these themes. And this led him into a kind of continuing public career uh, as a scholar who would speak both to Christian and secular audiences, in some ways helping each one to understand the other. And uh, in 2018, he published the book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, and this, uh, given the fact that it was very, very surprising to many people who knew both Donald Trump and thought they knew evangelicals, uh, it was very surprising that evangelicals in such a robust number turned out to be ardent supporters of the candidacy and then eventual presidency of Donald Trump. So his book, Believe Me, uh, ended up being another means to help the broader world understand this backstory, as well as to give Dr. Fia uh, a chance to continue uh, to speak to the evangelical community itself. His work in the broader world has gotten to be very broad and extensive indeed. You may have seen him, seen him without knowing who he was on CNN, MSNBC, CBS, C-SPAN, or heard him on NPR. In fact, I was with him at a conference four years ago when the Trump campaign rolled into Regent University unexpectedly while we were there for a conference. And while the Trump rally was going on, John was on the phone with a reporter from NPR, from NPR who was helping, who was asking him to try to make sense of what it was that he saw happening there. Um, so if you're interested in following Dr. Fee on, on any of these fronts, uh, I encourage you to check out his 
wildly popular blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home. You can also follow him on Twitter along with 19,000 other people. I'm sorry, it's actually 18.6, I believe at the moment, but pardon the exaggeration when you're you know, introducing a speaker. Uh, so, uh, so Dr. Fee and I have known each other since we studied at Trinity uh, outside of, just outside of Chicago, close to Deerfield. Those of you who are followers of the Chicago Bulls or the Michael Jordan era will know that Deerfield is where the Bulls practice. And we were actually probably on campus that day when Michael Jordan announced his retirement just a couple miles away from the, from the Divinity School where we were studying. But I need to tell you this. Last night, I, those who were here, I told about John Fia's career as a singer and the great parody band Feast. John Fia is actually, was actually no mean basketball player, and maybe he still is, but he, was, he, is a, he has been inducted into the Hall of Fame of Cairn University, which he attended when it was known as Philadelphia College of the Bible in, in the 1980s. I was at the rival institution, Lancaster Bible College. We graduated the same year, did not know each other until we showed up at TEDS, but then it turned out that he had actually knew my roommates and things like that who were basketball players. So, uh, this man, who is an athlete and basketball player, also began in those years in the 90s at Trinity to host the FIA Invitational Tournament during the NCAA tournament, in which he very carefully selected people to post their own uh, uh, brackets, and then would, with a heavy hand, I must say, oversee everything that was taking place. But I want to tell you, this man never won his own tournament and I have, when I picked in 1998, the Kentucky Wildcats, and my son, Luke, who some of you know, is also a winner, I think at about age 10 of the Fee Invitational Tournament. Not John, so let's console him in this disappointment by welcoming him enthusiastically, Dr. John Fia. I don't even know where to begin and how to respond to that introduction. Um, I, could, I could go on, um, again, how am I doing sound-wise? A little, little good, good, okay. Um, I could go on a riff about, I sound a little loud. Um, I could go on a riff about the Bulls. I could go on a riff about a bunch of stuff Eric mentioned. Um, but I have valued my friendship with Eric Miller uh, perhaps more than most of the friendships, if not all of the friendships that I've had in life. Uh, you have a gifted, gifted intellectual and historian here in your midst. And I hope you don't take him for granted here at Geneva College. And I know you don't. Um, uh, Eric is one of the most important thinkers within the Christian church today. And I don't say that in a kind of hyperbolic way. Thank you. Um, so last night we talked a little bit about the Bible and the American Revolution and the Bible and politics, if you were listening. Um, today, I, I want to do something maybe more suitable for uh, a Constitution Day lecture. Um, and I want to I start off with the lyrics. I'm not going to sing these lyrics this time like I sung last night, but because they weren't sung in the actual play. But some of you may recognize these words that I'm about to read to you. Alexander joins forces with James Madison and John Jay to write a series of essays defending the United States Constitution entitled The Federalist Papers. Anyone with me so far? Yeah. The plan was to write a total of 25 essays. The work divided evenly among the three men. In the end, they wrote 85 essays in the span of six months. John Jay got sick after writing five. 
James Madison wrote 29. And I'm not even going to try to sound like Leslie Odom Jr. here, but Hamilton wrote the other 51. For those unfamiliar, the lines I just read are from Nonstop, the song in the Broadway play Hamilton that deals with the New York lawyer and eventual Secretary of the Treasury's role in defending the United States Constitution as the states debated ratification in 1788. The celebration of Hamilton and his fellow Federalists, James Madison, John Jay, Governor Morris, and of course, George Washington, has been a central theme in American history textbooks and school lessons and now Broadway plays since the Constitution was ratified in 1789. Conspicuously absent, however, from Lin-Manuel Miranda's masterpiece are the men who opposed the United States Constitution. Yes, we do hear from Thomas Jefferson, but he eventually came around to at least tolerating the document. Aaron Burr also came around quickly, although he, Jefferson, and then eventually even Madison would later become staunch opponents of the way the Federalist Party in the 1790s, led by Washington, and Hamilton and John Adams executed this Constitution. They say that winners write history. And in the case of the Constitution, it is indeed the Federalists, Federalists who live, who die, who tell the story. All good patriots love Patrick Henry for saying, give me liberty or give me death in the Virginia Assembly in 1775. We admire Sam Adams, not only for his beer, am I allowed to say that at Geneva, but for his leadership of the Boston Sons of Liberty. We remember George Mason as the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, a document that Thomas Jefferson drew upon in the writing of the Declaration of Independence. We remember James Monroe for the famous Monroe Doctrine, that protected the Western Hemisphere, or at least tried to protect the Western Hemisphere from European colonization in the early 19th century. Few of us, however, remember Henry, Adams, Mason, or Monroe for opposing the ratification of the United States Constitution. They all did. Nor do the names Amos Singletary, Luther Martin, George Clinton, Robert Yates, or James Winthrop come to mind when we think about the important founding fathers. Indeed, all of these men supported independence in 1776 and championed what the late historian Francis Becker called home rule for the colonies. But they differed greatly with Hamilton, Madison, Jay, Morris, Washington, and the rest of the so-called Federalists about, quote unquote, who should rule at home. This was the question of how seriously, who should rule at home, of how seriously one should take the ideas and ideals of the revolution in the forging of new governments after July 4, 1776. Most of us want history to define us for what we are for, right? Not what we are against. 
but the opponents of the Constitution will be forever stuck with the word anti in front of their name. No one wants to be anti, right? This is actually ironic because anti-federalists actually championed the 18th century idea of federalism, small f, federalism. Federalism being a system of government that sought to strike a balance between the power of the central government and the power of the local or state governments. So by this definition that I just defined, federalism, this balance between local and national interests in government, by that definition, it was actually Team Hamilton that rejected federalism, rejected this balance. Yet they would snatch up the name federalist, and today we use the term federal government when we really mean national government. What I want to do then this morning is briefly outline the story of the years between 1776 and 1789. 1789 being the, the year the, rat, the Constitution was ratified officially. I want to talk about these 13 years, very quickly and briefly, of course, from the perspective of the losers. In other words, this history lecture will require a certain act of empathy on your part to see the world from the perspective of those who did not embrace the document that we are celebrating today. The Anti-Federalists may have lost the battle for the Constitution, but many of their ideas and values may actually look familiar to anyone who plays, pays close attention to 21st century politics. On the other hand, they may also look very strange to us today. On one level, Anti-Federalist ideas did not die after 1789. Rather, they have remained an important part of the American political landscape. On another level, the Federalist triumph, the victory of the Federalists in 1788, was so great and in some ways so comprehensive that it would be virtually impossible today for us to reclaim anything close to the Anti-Federalist vision as we live our lives in 2020. So here we go. Let's go back to 1776. In that year, an important year, obviously, in the history of our country, many Americans took very seriously the ideas laid out in the Declaration of Independence. In fact, they were so serious about things like life, liberty, pursuits of happiness, the idea that all men are created equal, they were so serious about these ideas that they actually, believe it or not, thought that they could build state governments based on these ideas. Remember, all 13 of the colonies now were, had ridden themselves of royal governments and were now tasked with building their own state constitutions, writing their state constitutions. Right? Once the royal governors were gone and the crown was out, as the revolutionary Thomas Paine wrote in an April 1776 letter to the Pennsylvania Gazette, quote, the answer to the question, 
can America be happy under a government of her own, is short and simple. She can be as she pleases. She hath a blank slate, or a blank sheet, I should say, to write upon, unquote. Take, for example, the state we're in right now, the state of Pennsylvania. The men who gathered in Philadelphia to write the 1776 Pennsylvania Constitution in the summer and early fall of 1776 were not particularly well known. These were men who came to Philadelphia. I, when I give tours of colonial Philadelphia, take my students to Philadelphia, I always point out, I teach a course on Pennsylvania history. I always point out that on one side of the room, you had the Second Continental Congress, and on the other side of the room, which is usually the first place you go when you take a tour of Independence Hall, was the Pennsylvania State House. So you had someone like Ben Franklin, who was in both, running back and forth, right, across that hallway, right? They're literally in the same building forging a state constitution over here and a national um, uh, declaring independence, a declaration of independence over here. Most of these writers of the state constitution were Scots-Irish Presbyterians or else German Calvinists. They had a long history of opposing the Penn families' proprietorship. They were the ones who ruled the colony. Uh, and they certainly did not like the peace-loving Quakers who controlled the Pennsylvania Assembly for most of the colonial period, largely because both the Penn family and the Quakers, for various reasons, would not dole out money to pay militiamen to protect them from the Indians out on the frontier in places like Harrisburg and Carlisle and west of Carlisle. These Scots-Irish had a long history also of underrepresentation in the Pennsylvania Assembly, despite the fact that they were a growing population. Right? No taxation without representation, right? We want representation. They believed that the American Revolution, with its Enlightenment ideals and values, would remedy all of their problems. When Thomas Paine said that the American Revolution would start the world over again, which he said in common sense, these people out on the frontier actually believed him. In the early 1770s, these radical Presbyterians, and they were mostly Presbyterians, gained control of the Pennsylvania Assembly and wrote a constitution to reflect their values, which they thought were the values of the revolution itself. At the time, the Pennsylvania Constitution was one of the most democratic documents the world had ever seen, the Constitution that these men wrote. For example, it had an executive branch that was plural. These counselors, they were called. Uh, but this executive branch had virtually no power whatsoever. At the heart of the Pennsylvania Constitution was a unicameral or one-house legislature. This meant that there was no upper house to check the will of the people in the popular house. The Pennsylvania Constitution had no land or wealth requirements for office holding, the only constitution like that of the 13. And even free blacks could vote, free black men. The state held yearly elections 
So every year you had to go back to your constituency and get reelected and listen to them again, right? That's even, that's even more democracy than we have in the House of Representatives today, where it's only two years that they have to go back, right? Annual elections, the proceedings of the assembly, the day-to-day -day proceedings were required to be published in the newspapers, and the doors of the Pennsylvania State House remained open for anyone who wanted to come and watch the proceedings. That's democracy, folks. You can't even get into the Pennsylvania State House today without 50 National Park Service guys blocking the door, right? You can walk right in and watch. Benjamin Rush, who was a Philadelphia doctor and signer of the Declaration of Independence, said that the Pennsylvania Constitution created a quote-unquote mob government. And one outside observer, William Hopper from North Carolina, called it a beast, the unicameral legislature, right? A beast without a head. An execrable democracy that will shake the very being of this once flourishing country. Why would they say this? Wouldn't they tr don't they trust the people? Well, as we're going to see, many of them did not. Not all of the new state governments were as democratic as Pennsylvania. But most of them were certainly more democratic than the royal governments that existed during the colonial period in these states. Nearly all of the state constitutions, for example, started with a Bill of Rights. And most of them were not tacked on to the end, but they were right up front. These bills of rights protected things that we're all familiar with, things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, trial by jury, and so forth. Moreover, the ratio of representatives to people actually living in the colony was incredibly low. So for example, Rhode Island had one representative for every 1,045 people. Remember, the, remember the, the Constitution, if you read the Constitution, the House of Representatives has one representative for 30,000, right? One representative for 1,045 people. The Massachusetts legislature, had, legislature, which is a large state, had 355 members with one representative for every 1,067 people. The South Carolina legislature had 222 members with... Rep, uh, men representing a district of roughly 1,120 people. These were small districts, right? So again, these were exciting times for the people in these new states. The people had a palpable sense that their representatives were listening to them. The national government, if you could even call it that, the Articles of Confederation, they had some responsibilities Indian affairs, regulating trade, and so forth. But they really had no power whatsoever, as anyone who takes the US history survey course know. They had no power to carry them out without the approval of the states. This is how things were supposed to be. The colonists had thrown off a centralized government in the form of England and refused to accept now another one. America's first champions of democracy were ordinary farmers and mechanics who believed that all politics was indeed, to quote the 1980 Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, all politics were local. Everyday people monitored the specific needs of their communities and then sought to meet those needs 
by passing, by, by telling their representatives who would then try to pass legislation in their state assemblies. Democracy flourished when people felt attached to towns, neighborhoods, and precincts. Local knowledge was everything in politics. Indeed, as Luther Martin of Maryland put it, happiness, quote, happiness is preferable to the splendors of a national government, unquote. Juxtaposing this idea of happiness and a centralized government, right? How can someone be represented by a man they had never met or who didn't live in close proximity to them? What's the question? This was actually the lesson of the revolution, they thought. Remember, in the years leading up to 1776, the colonies wanted their own assemblies to pass their own laws and levy their own taxes based on local needs, not on a parliament on the other side of the ocean who didn't know who they were and didn't understand their local needs. Of course, like any flourishing democracy, there would be hurdles to leap and speed bumps to cross. The most pressing of these obstacles in 1780s was the issuing of currency. The states were in debt following the American Revolutionary War. Farmers who made up most of the ordinary men who now found themselves in positions of political power in the way they never had been before were hardest hit by the scarcity of currency. While it was probably not a smart idea, let's just, let me just correct that, it wasn't a smart idea to print and circulate more paper money to meet these, these scarcities in cash. Of course, this is a decision that often led to further inflation and social chaos. These were all problems these democratic men and women believed that could eventually be overcome. The important part was that the people now had their say in local government. America was not living through some critical period as the Federalist-loving historian John Fisk described the 1770s in an 1888 history book by the same title. America was rather living out the fulfillment of its revolution. Democracy just needed to find its footing. Either the Republic moved forward under the guise of local democracy, or it didn't deserve to move forward at all. Some took these economic difficulties, which oftentimes actually resulted in riots, farmers' riots, like the one that occurred in 1787 in Western Massachusetts under the leadership of a farmer named Daniel Shays. They took these things as a sign that ordinary men, ordinary men rather, could not govern themselves in an orderly fashion. These critics believed that educated men of wealth and stature, they should be the ones making the decisions because they were more prone, due to their financial security, due to their political training or education, to pass laws that served not selfish ends, but the common good. Perhaps it was time these critics believed to get together a few people and make a few tweaks, some small revisions to the Articles of Confederation. And this might help those democratic states to find their footing that they needed, the footing they needed. In the summer of 1787, a call went out to representatives from each state to come to Philadelphia to revise 
the Articles of Confederation. Most of you know the story. I hope you do. Of course, this is not what happened. Alexander Hamilton's understanding of a revision, quote unquote, of the Articles essentially meant dumping the Articles of Confederation completely and creating something akin to a British monarchy in America. He talked for six hours. The convention was listless. James Madison and the Virginia delegation were also ready to scrap the Articles in favor of a more centralized government. Madison wanted two houses. Some of you remember this in your civics class or your politics or constitution class as this, the Virginia plan, right? Madison wanted two houses with proportional representation based upon population. He wanted the upper house, the Senate, which he often described as the gods on Mount Olympus, to have veto power over laws passed by the state legislatures. Now, he didn't get that, but that's what he wanted. Only William Patterson of New Jersey, a Princeton classmate, by the way, of Luther Martin, who I just mentioned, had the concerns of these champions of local democracy in mind, as he lobbied for smaller states having the same number of representatives as larger states. This plan would actually have come somewhat close to what many thought they were coming to Philadelphia to accomplish, which was namely a revision of the Articles of Confederation. But when the convention rejected the New Jersey plan, it was clear that this would be more than a mere revision. Hamilton and Madison brought a distinct view of human nature to bear on their new constitution. As Madison would argue in uh, probably the most famous of all the Federalist Papers, Federalist Number 10, Human beings were prone to selfishness. Selfishness bred factions and interest groups and parties. And factions, interest groups, and parties bred disunity. As Madison wrote in Federalist 10, quote, factions are sown in the nature of man, and we see them everywhere brought into different degrees of activity, unquote. He added in Federalist 51, if men were angels, what? No government would be necessary. Hamilton joined the fray as well. In Federalist 15, he wrote, why government? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason. Factions formed by selfish men and women could not be simply removed. They were sown into the nature of human beings. But perhaps they could be controlled by a strong government that held them in check. A national government was necessary, according to Madison in Federalist Number 10, to, quote, refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be, likely, uh, will be unlikely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations, unquote. The framers of the Constitution applied their belief in the selfish nature of man to their new government in multiple ways. Now, some of this might sound familiar, right? For example, it was the state legislatures, not the people, 
who would elect these senators, these gods up on Mount Olympus. Well, it was good that the states had a direct say, right, in who would represent them in the new national government. It was not lost on the critics of the Constitution and the defenders of local democracy that senators got a six-year term. This meant they were not accountable to the people or the states for a rather extended period of time. This was before these senators would go back to their districts, you know, fly back to their districts every week, right? They didn't have to check in with the people until their six-year term was over. Nor did the people directly elect the new executive. In fact, no one even bothered to count the popular vote in the United States presidential races until 1824, because it was the Electoral College, not the people who directly selected the chief executive. As George Mason wrote in one of his temporary, I should say temporary, because I mentioned him as an anti-federalist, but as he wrote in one of his temporary federalist swoons, quote, it would be as unnatural to refer the choice of the chief magistrate to the people as it would to refer a trial of colors to a blind man, unquote. The president, not the people, chose the members of the judicial branch. And it was the Senate, far removed from the people, who approved these judicial appointments. Remember that the president and the Senate were two of the branches most removed from the people. They would be the ones who would be making these judicial appointments. The electoral districts that chose members of the House of Representatives, the lower house, the so-called People's House, were so large that it would be virtually impossible, especially in a world of wagons and horses, to make one's voice heard to their representatives. Forget about inviting him over for tea or dinner to talk about politics. You may never even meet this guy. You may never even get a chance to shake his hand. None of this was good. For many, what happened in Philadelphia was a counter-revolution, a coup d'etat by a bunch of self-interested elites who claimed that they would not let self-interest overcome the true interests of their country. But the anti-federalists knew better. They didn't trust the government to these wealthy land speculators and businessmen. These men were concerned with things like national banks and re reports on public credit and all of these other kinds of things related that had no relationship to the ordinary person. Patrick Henry, he wouldn't even show up at the Constitutional Convention. He said he smelled a rat. Henry Clinton of New York wondered if the new national city that was proposed, it would eventually become Washington, D.C., but the new national city proposed by the Constitution would be little more than a, quote, asylum of the base, idle, avaricious, and ambitious, unquote. Sound familiar? Right. One opponent of the Constitution described the defenders of it as well-born conspirators, unquote. Yes, passions were dangerous. The Anti-Federalists could not deny that fact, but it was the passions of men that also fueled robust debate and energized local democratic life. All human beings, as Thomas Paine famously said, were born with common sense. And this was all that they needed to participate in government and forge their own destinies. One did not need formal education and special wisdom to make political decisions. It was perfectly fine to vote in accordance with one's self-interest instead of their interests of the so-called common good, which they viewed as little more than these elites uh, you know, suppressing them, a way they, they would suppress them. 
just when it looked like the ideals of the American Revolution were going to turn the world upside down, the framers of the Constitution came along with their calls of order and their defense of the status quo. At the heart of the debate, of course, was the meaning of the American Revolution. Nagging questions remained. Again, how revolutionary was this revolution? Did patriots fight a war against Great Britain simply to return to a strong central government that limited the voice of the people under something akin to the old English idea of virtual representation? There was still hope. The Federalists wrote their constitution, the coup was underway, but under the rules of the Articles of Confederation, which were still in place, right? The counter-revolutionaries would need to convince nine states to turn back uh, turn their backs on progress and curtail the political liberties they had enjoyed throughout much of the 1780s. As Hamilton, Madison, and Jay began to write day and night like they were running out of time to defend the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, the educated Anti-Federalists did the same. Our finest historian of the Anti-Federalist tradition, Saul Cornell, has, to has told us that these dissenters criticized the Constitution for limiting the power of the states and creating what they described as an aristocracy that was unaccountable to the people. They opposed large legislative districts in which there was only one representative for every 30,000 people. As anti-federalist James Winthrop of Massachusetts put it, people inhabiting various climates will unavoidably have local habits and different modes of life, and these must be consulted in making laws. It is much easier to adapt the laws to the manners of the people than to make manners conform to laws. Most anti-federalists believe that the federal judiciary branch posed a threat to state courts who applied the law in light of local circumstances and customs. This is especially a concern in the South. What if the Supreme Court intervened to end slavery? A local custom, right? The Anti-Federalists were also concerned about the new national government's power to tax. This power should reside in the states where representatives could better assess how tax dollars might find their way to worthwhile projects. A particular concern was the framers of the Constitution's decision to allow the new national government to raise and support armies. And many were not fans of the president as the commander-in-chief of these armies. This all reeked of old world monarchy. While most anti-federalists would admit that a national army, such as the one George Washington led during the uh, American Revolution, the Continental Army, it might, they might, it might be needed at times during war, but they were bothered that the Constitution did not prohibit standing armies in peacetime. They believed that the military needs of the country during times of peace were best handled by militias volunteer armies of local citizens willing to pick up their rifles and guns at a moment's notice and defend their liberties. The Anti-Federalists were even opposed to the words, opening words of the Constitution. We the people in order to form a more perfect union. The jump from the people to the union completely ignored the states. Many Anti-Federalists did not even believe that a single unified people existed. The Constitution to quote late historian John Murren, attempted to place a roof over the country, but how could this national roof be supported without the walls of the states? In the late 1780s, P. 
people were Virginians, Pennsylvanians, South Carolinians, and Rhode Islanders before they were something called Americans. The state was their primary sense of identity, and now the framers of the Constitution believed that they could hold the country together by ignoring these homegrown identities. In one of the least studied aspects of anti-federalism, there were also many who opposed the Constitution because it did not make any appeals to God. Indeed, the 18th century, in the 18th century, it was those who opposed the Constitution who made the strongest argument in favor of the United States being a Christian nation. When Martin Luther reported on the events of the Constitutional Convention to the Maryland State Legislature, he criticized the Philadelphia farmers for, quote, being so unfashionable to think that a belief of the existence of a deity and of a state of future rewards and punishments would be some security for the good conduct of our rulers. For Martin, the United States was a Christian country, and the Constitution should, quote, hold out some distinction between the professors of Christianity and downright infidelity or paganism. They also opposed Article 6, which placed no Christian qualifications on office holders. Could you imagine if a pagan or a follower of Muhammad or a Hindu or a Turk or a heathen or a Negro even, these are all words they used, could hold public office? There must be some kind of a Christian test. And where was the Bill of Rights? Why didn't the framers of the Constitution protect freedom of the press, freedom of the religion, freedom of the right to assemble, trial by jury, in the way that nearly all the state constitutions had done? In the end, anti-federalists put up a good fight. While they were trounced in federalist-dominated states like Connecticut, Maryland, South Carolina, they showed real strength in other states. For example, the Constitution was ratified by only two votes in New York, three votes in Rhode Island, seven votes in New Hampshire, eight votes in Maryland. The degree to which you find it shocking, I'm talking to you now, the degree to which you find it shocking that so many people oppose the Constitution is the degree to which you have been formed and shaped by the Federalist narrative of American history, the winners, right? In the end, Members of state legislatures felt Federalist the Federalist arguments of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were more compelling. And of course, it did not hurt that George Washington, a man who rose above party and factionalism with his very presence, strongly supported the Constitution. How could anyone go against Washington? So what should we make here in the last minute or two? What should we make of the anti-Federalist legacy in American history? After the ratification of the Constitution, most anti-federalists found their way to the Democratic Republican Party and its champion, Thomas Jefferson. But anti-federalist ideas persisted long after the Jeffersonians faded from political life. We can find anti-federalist arguments condemning strong national governments and defending states' rights in the pre-Civil War South, the Confederacy, and the post-Civil War South during and following Reconstruction. In the 20th century, we find regular appeals to anti-federalists in opposition to the New Deal, the anti-big government rhetoric of libertarians such as Barry Goldwater in the 60s and Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. We find anti-federalist rhetoric among student protests against the military-industrial complex 
as they called it, during the Vietnam War. Tom Hayden of Students for a Democratic Society often quoted the Anti-Federalists. Cornell writes, radicalism at both ends of the spectrum shows a remarkable affinity for an anti-federalist conception of politics. In the end, Hamilton and the Federalists won, and they won big. Anti-federalist localism looked possible in the late 1780s and into the early 19th century, but as time went on, America turned in a nationalist direction. The Federalists and their descendants, including 19th century Whig, the 19th century Whig Party and Abraham Lincoln, they all promoted building of roads, canals, bridges, and railroads to connect people and bring these disparate states into some kind of national community. As the decades rolled on, mass communication like radio and television and eventually the internet created a national culture that today makes anti-federalism and the Jeffersonian agricultural republic that drew upon its ideas look like an attempt to craft a vision for America from a world that is gone and never coming back. But for a brief moment, it was possible that the national political narrative in which we live today may have been fundamentally different. No Hamilton on Broadway, no Constitution Day. Ironically, the more connected we have become to the nationalism that Alexander Hamilton dreamed about, and I think perhaps quite literally dreamed about, the more we claim to feel disconnected from government and shout from the rooftops that our voices are not being heard. Perhaps the Anti-Federalists are on to something. Thank you.